You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, Attorney Dan Mayer and Licensed Counselor Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney, and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now, here are your hosts. Hi there, and welcome back. Today, Dan and I will be talking to Dr. Daniel Water. He has an impressive background with a lot of experience, so we're just going to give you some of the highlights. Dr. Waters is a psychologist and a marital and family therapist. He is board certified in sex therapy by the American Association of Sexual Educators, Counselors and Therapists, and the American Board of Sexology. Dr. Waters is an ASECT certified sex therapy supervisor, and he is a faculty member at the University of Michigan School of Social Work Sexual Certification Program and the Modern Sex Therapy Institute. And it was at the University of Michigan where I was able to meet Dr. Water. And on top of that, he's completed two terms on the New Jersey Psychological Association's Ethics Committee, where he spent two years as the committee's chairperson. And from 2019 to 2021, he was the chair of the ASECT, Ethics Advisory Committee. We're really looking forward to having you joining us today. I did. I saw your bio and I was like really impressed. And I thought, you know, is there anything that he hasn't done? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's a long list there. There's a long list. (laughs) We gave the condensed version. Right. (laughs) But we are excited because, you know, it's it's really exciting to have an expert on today. um, And that doesn't often come up a lot. So I'm looking to hearing to forward to hearing what you have to say today. So there were a few reasons that I thought it would be really good for you to join us today. One, you have experience sitting on two different ethics committees, the New Jersey Psychological Association's Ethics Committee and the ASECT Ethics Advisory Committee. And two, because there are some unique considerations for people who are sex therapists that you could help us talk about today. Sure. Yeah, no, I'm very happy to do that. I'm happy to be here and thanks for the invitation. One of the things that as an attorney, for me, um, of course, is I'm always looking at compliance and, and legal issues and things like that. And one of the things that I'm really particularly interested to hear from you about is, you know, I think that sex therapy is one of those things where, you know, people don't like to acknowledge it. They don't like to talk about it um, because maybe there's some, you know, unneeded shame in it um, or embarrassment. But as someone who specializes kind of in, in this field as, as an attorney, of course, you know, I'm curious to hear from you. Um, about what type of legal or ethical concerns um, can come up, um, you know, when you're working with the New Jersey Ethical um, Ethics Committee, you know, or the um, ASEC um, Ethics Committee, you know, what were similarities and things? Were there differences in, in between the two two committees that you served on? So there, I would say they were there were mostly similarities. Both of them really strive to be more educative uh, bodies than adjudicative mm-hmm. bodies, and largely, largely because of liability reasons. Too, associations generally are they don't they don't want to be in the position to have to adjudicate cases. But probably what would be um, you know more instructive is while I did I did spend time as you mentioned on those ethics committees. Mm-hmm. Um, I also spent uh, a few terms on the uh, licensing board, you know, in New Jersey for psychologists, and that's where you know the 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 people who got themselves into real trouble, yes. you know, would would really be be dealt with because, you know, the ASEC committee and the New Jersey Psychological Association Ethics Committee really tried to do more education to promote, mm-hmm. you know, good ethical behavior to help people, 
stay out of trouble. Um, but if any of their members did get into some real ethical or legal trouble, they would usually wait for the state licensing board to take action mm-hmm. before they would take any any action, you know, against uh, that person's membership. Mm-hmm. So, so most of the cases that I that I, I have seen have come through either my time on the uh, licensing board, or I also do a lot of work for the state licensing boards um, uh, in terms of, you know, dealing with their licensees who have crossed lines, usually sexual and, and mm-hmm. relationship lines. That's, that's, that's where my, my expertise in both psychology and sex therapy come together is I'm usually the one that gets called upon to help evaluate and make recommendations for those who have, you know, had sexual relationship with patients, for example, whether it be through the medical board, the dental board, the board of psychological examiners, the board of social work mm-hmm. examiners, you know, all, all of those. And, uh, and I've also um, done a lot of work in the last decade or so with uh, New Jersey's professional assistance program for physicians which is a, a really terrific program where, you know, sometimes when people have done things that would affect their licenses, if they, you know, seem to be, you know, genuinely, you know, remorseful, or if there are some extenuating circumstances that make them amenable to treatment, they can sometimes go through the professional assistance program and the licensing board kind of holds off making a determination until, you know, they either complete that um, or, uh, sometimes they will lose their licenses, but by completing that program, they'll have their licenses reinstated. Okay. So, I, I, yeah. I, yeah. I have to ask because this is something that actually comes up. I actually have had this conversation. You know, occasionally, you know, just as an attorney working with mental health practitioners, that issue of someone crossing the boundaries, right? You know, having some sort of relationship with someone else um, when that happens. And I've had this conversation with practitioners and Generally, the consensus is always like, how could this person be so stupid? How could you let this happen? You know, how how do you not know better? And I, and I always think it's not necessarily that they don't know better, but that there's obviously other factors at play. And so I just wonder, could you speak a little bit to that? Like from your experience, obviously knowing you cannot reveal sensitive information or confidential information, but having now dealt, since you told us you dealt with these these cases, mm-hmm. what's the mindset? How does how do people get into this this how does this happen? So it's a great question, and and you're right. You know, it it seems like, you know, it should be fairly simple and straightforward. You know, how could this be mm-hmm. so complicated? You know, one of my partners always jokes that when I'm I'm going out to do a training, you know, on uh, uh, sexual boundaries, you know, in in uh, healthcare relationships, he says he says, isn't that just like a sentence? Like, don't do it. You know, like <laughs> right. doesn't ev- doesn't everybody just know that? And and yeah, uh, they do. But obviously, like with most things that get human beings in trouble, uh, it's far more complex you right. know, than that. And we are, we are human beings, which is sometimes hard to keep in mind, especially when you're dealing with you know, sexual offenses you know, or, or sexual uh, misbehaviors. Um, you know, we tend to see these people as just monsters. Right. But for most practitioners, so so I, I usually divide practitioners who cross these lines into two different categories. Um, one category, these are predators. You know, these are people who are clearly out to exploit. Um, they are looking to take advantage. They are looking to satisfy and gratify their own needs. And of course, those people 
um, are the most dangerous and the ones who are the least amenable to any kind of uh, a self-care program or a, a lecture or a workshop about this. You know, they are perhaps psychopathic, you know, and mm-hmm. and they're really without remorse and without without conscience. Those people are very difficult to help, very difficult to get through to. Um, but fortunately, they are also the small uh, number of cases. You know, the, they get most of the headlines, but they really represent the smallest number of cases. By far, the uh, the vast majority of people that I see from any of the professions, you know, whether it's as I said before, psychology, medicine, dentistry, social work, whatever it may be, we are most often looking at really impaired professionals. Um, And what I mean by impaired is these are people who are often going through some very significant life crises of their own, whether it's depression-related, relationship-related, financially-related, career-related, substance abuse-related. It's a gradual process that it doesn't just happen, you know, one day someone decides to wake up and cross a sexual boundary. Mm-hmm. It's a gradual process, which is part of what makes it, A, uh, so difficult to, uh, to, to, do, uh, to, to take care of on your own, because it happens so gradually that you don't even realize it. You know, each step you take doesn't look like much of a step. It's really sort of a, a slippery slope. It, you know, most of these people will you know, have a a relationship, a long-term relationship with a patient. And that relationship just gradually develops sometimes over a long period of time until it, you know, falls over the edge. So one is it's hard to notice because each increment is so, so small and so gradual. And the other is that, you know, while I I think, you know, when I, when I give these kinds of talks or trainings uh, and I talk about this distinction, most people will say, well, that's not going to be me. I'm not a predator. And that's probably true for the predator types. Mm-hmm. But what I'm describing about sort of the more psychologically and relationally impaired practitioners, that could be any of us. That could be anybody who, in, 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 under, under the, the right circumstances, can do things that are really uncharacteristic of mm-hmm. themselves. And that's one of the things that when I'm doing an evaluation, I try and identify as whether or not this is really an uncharacteristic action that can be attributed to some other life crisis, or whether or not this is really more predatory and and, and characteristic. When you're evaluating these people, when you're experiencing, you know, you're going through this process, is that so that that seems like like something that's that weight is given to. You know, if you're evaluating whether someone needs to be suspended or should be suspended or um, have their license revoked, then that those criteria that you just described, that does go towards that decision-making then as to whether or not, you know, was this an, an aberration? Was this something that was happening in their life that kind of triggered this? Or was this more, you know, um, predictive of just based on their general behavior? So, so yeah, to, to some degree, that's, that's definitely the case. Although, okay. you know, I would say that that probably is more of a factor in terms of license reinstatement or removal okay. of license restriction because the bottom line is you know if you cross these lines uh there are con- there are going to be consequences you know sure. 
most most people who do this, they are going to have their licenses suspended at the very least. And that's going to be, you know, for a, a substantive period, you know, five years or, or, or more. Um, most of the licensing boards that I'm familiar with, there's a five-year minimum period before you can reapply, wow. you know, for to, you know, for reinstatement. So, so there are consequences and those consequences can be severe. But when it comes down to, okay, you know, has this person dealt with whatever issues that led them to cross this line to begin with? That's really more where where my evaluations come into play and have some some weight. You know, it's uh, you know, I, I suppose you know, in a, in a legal sense, right? There are consequences mm-hmm. for breaking the law. You break Absolutely. the law, right? You know, there's yep. there's a consequence, yeah. and you know, and and then we'll see what happens. But you're not gonna not gonna be excused. You know, from the bad behavior. Yeah. And I think it's worth emphasizing what you just said. This could happen to anyone under a given set of circumstances, even though people might think, well, that would never be me. I would never do that. Um, That maybe it's not so clear cut. Well, you know, it's a really good point. And, you know, one of the things that has just never ceased to amaze me, you know, just in doing psychotherapy now, you know, I've been doing psychotherapy for roughly 40 years. And so many times I'll see people facing life crises and they say that, you know, I always thought that if I ever found myself in the situation, this is what I would do. And now I'm in this situation and I can't do that. You know, it's, it's much more, co- for example, take cases of infidelity. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've often worked with People who will then say, you know, I always said if my partner was unfaithful to me, that would be it. That's that's crossing the line. That's out. And then when it actually happens, it's like, you know, this is so much more complicated than I thought it would be to make that kind of decision. There are so many other factors to weigh. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing when people get into trouble. You know, you never think you're going to get there. Of course you don't. That's because most of these life crises, either you don't anticipate that they're going to happen or you have no experience with how to deal with them because they haven't happened before. And so, you know, you sometimes, you, 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 and again, it's not an excuse, but you look for ways to feel better. You know, sometimes yeah. you, you look for something that is soothing. And mm. except for the fact that, you know, we're talking about patients who, you know, have our trust and who we need to maintain these boundaries with, you know, uh, you know uh, no matter what. These relationships often look a lot like courtship relationships, you know, that, you know, it starts out with just, you know, somebody, you know, being very excited that this is the patient I'm going to see today, Uh, giving them a little extra time, placing them in your schedule at the end of the day so that you're Mm. not rushed, so that you have time, maybe, you know, taking a little extra care with your grooming, you know, that day because you're seeing this person. Interesting. Uh, yeah, then there's a ch- there's a whole chat function and you know talking about things that aren't really related to you know why you're seeing them but just learning more about their lives and you know then it it could move to a cup of coffee. I mean, you know, it it's like a courtship almost mm, right. except it's it it it's it just is a courtship that really can't can't be. And because we talk we've talked before on this uh, podcast about self-care right? And how important it is that practitioners are taking care of their own mental health in order for them to be the best caretaker and provider of services and therapy services to their clients. And 
it almost seems to me some what you're describing is also it comes out of someone not doing that right if you're not taking you know you're not uh, value yourself worth you're not taking that that time to deal with your own uh, mental uh, taking yourself care of yourself mentally if there are things yeah. that are really that you know really causing those kind of turbulation in your life and you're not dealing with them that's something that as practitioners you really need to be aware of and you know you know making yourself deal with so that this doesn't kind of bleed into your professional relationships i guess yeah yeah you know i i, I think that's a lot like sleep in a sense you know uh, or vacation you know or downtime you know mm -hmm. people sort of assume that well that's a luxury you know and you know and i i was actually watching a movie the other day and i heard one of the characters say uh, i'll sleep enough when i die you know it's almost as if you know that's sort of an optional as opposed to vitally important and that's all part of self care and you're right that a lot of these people if they were either getting some help earlier uh, or were even more aware of what was happening a, a, a lot of the problems could be headed off you know you're you're ab you're absolutely right so self care is 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 huge in this regard and taking care of things that aren't going well whether it's a relationship whether it's uh, you know, emotions, you know, whatever it, it may be. Because as I said, you know, as it gets worse and worse, people look for something soothing and they're going to take greater and greater risks and go to greater and greater extremes to try and find that. And if you, you know, if you go back just a minute or so, when I was sort of talking about how that progression works, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes I'll, I'll use an example of like, you know, you're, you're driving down, you know, the interstate, you know, the road is pretty clear and you're going the speed limit of, you know, let's say 65 miles an hour, you know, and you're listening to the radio and the music and the music is great and the breeze is great. And the road is open. And, you know, before you know it, you know, you're, you're, you're at uh, 70, you know, and then you keep going and then it's 75, right. And, and then maybe you'll go up to 80, you know, and 80, and, and you don't even know it, right? Right. Feels so, these increments feel so gradual that you don't even know it until you look down at the speedometer or, you know, there's a police officer behind. Right. But if, but, but if you were going 65 and you went from 65 to 95, you would feel that. Yeah. That would be very noticeable. When it's incremental like this, it's not noticeable. Really it's not analogy. noticeable. And, and that's one of the reasons why people in the mental health professions anyway, you know, are strong advocates of, uh, you know, peer supervision groups, you know, where people talk through their cases and they talk with others about, uh, you know, it, it, well, it, it becomes almost like a group therapy sometimes, or they may have their own individual therapy that even though they're not in distress at this particular time, you know, they recognize, you know, how insidious this can be. And it's good to be in therapy, but other professions, uh, the non-mental health professions do very, very little of that, unfortunately. You know, it would, would help if they did, but they don't. Yeah. Lawyers are a good example of that, by the way. And I would say even yeah. in the mental health arena, there are probably ways that we can improve. So, oh, yeah. you know, oh, if yeah. a mental health therapist saw some of these warning signs that you're talking about, they're extending the session, maybe an extended hug, or maybe um, they're paying extra attention to what they look like on a given day because this person's coming on in. What are some recommendations that you would have for someone who 
maybe is starting to recognize that they've been doing those things with a particular client? What are some things that they can do either internally to monitor or with a peer, a professional? What are some recommendations? Well, it sounds like from what you're describing, the internal monitoring has already occurred, right? Like you said, they're becoming aware of this. So at that point, you know, it becomes especially important to get some supervision, to get some therapy, to get some consultation. Problem is, is that if that's happening, then you're probably already in a bit of a crisis state. And there's a lot of, you know, for some people, there's a lot of, of, of shame once they get to a certain point. You know, it's like, it's one thing to talk in, in, your, in your peer group about your attraction to somebody. It's another thing to sort of talk about how far down the line I may have taken this, you know, already. And the unfortunate reality is that a lot of people just don't do anything about it because, again, I, I just I compared it to like a type of courtship before, mm-hmm. yeah. and par- part of what goes with that is there is a certain excitement and pleasure that someone doesn't really want to let go of. They don't want to give it up. And they are able then to rationalize or justify uh, to themselves why this isn't really a harmful thing or why it's really not a bad thing. Um, but, you know, ultimately, it's, it's typically the patients that get hurt. Based on what we're talking about, is there a way or is one recommendation, you know, if you're, if you're someone who's a practitioner and you say, oh, gosh, you know, you're listening to this podcast, you're like, that's me, you know, and is one of the recommended one option to, basically have a conversation with the patient and say, you know, I need to refer you to a different practitioner because I, you know, how do you have that conversation? Is that a conversation you should have? What's the proper therapeutic approach here then? If you are someone, you know, like most said, you start to recognize these symptoms and you do want to say, okay, I got to stop this. How do I stop this? Is that a, a, a course of action that, that therapists or practitioners should consider? So, you know, that's, that's also a, a really good question. Um, Part of what complicates the situation is that those practitioners who are most vulnerable, I'm not saying that they're the only ones, but the most vulnerable ones are those practitioners who have long-term ongoing relationships with their patients. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, most of us in the mental health field, including psychiatry, um, but it's also those who have family practice, uh, internal medicine practices. OBGYN practices, dental practices, right? These are people who get to know somebody and work with them for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And so discontinuation of care um, becomes a real issue. You know, it's like, so, you know, so because I'm having these feelings or I'm noticing some of these things, I should refer you to somebody else. I think that's much better than letting it continue to progress, you mm-hmm. know, and, and have something bad come out of it. Mm-hmm. But I think the better idea at that stage is to get some help because most life crises are temporary, you know, they're, they're temporary. They will, they will pass. You can deal with this. And, you know, if the person trusts you with their health, you know, with their care, um, and they've been with you for a long time, it's because you've done a lot of good work with them and they, they depend on that, you know, and, and you have a responsibility, you know, to your patients, you know, in, in, in the big picture as well. Now, obviously, as I said, it would be better to end that relationship 
then haven't crossed the line. Mm-hmm. But I but I don't know that I would I would say that if you start to feel this way about somebody, then you're going to cross the line. So get rid of them as as a patient. I, I I don't think that's that has to be the way, and I certainly don't think that would be the the first or the immediate or the preferred way. Not sure. Interesting. Now, just to kind of continue down this road, because Dan, you're bringing up a lot of things, right? Well, do I disclose the feelings is one of the things that I think you kind of threw out there, Dan, is mm-hmm. do I disclose uh, yeah. that this is why I'm terminating? Is that an okay thing to do? Or is that like a no, definitely don't do that. Should I terminate? And I'm also wondering, because some people might say, well, if I'm attracted to this client, can I just terminate? And then we're no, we no longer have that relationship. And then maybe it would be okay. What would you say to that? Yeah. I mean, that's that, you know, again, just goes a little bit deeper and, and adds other layers of complication because a lot of times what happens is that, especially, you know, when you're talking about a patient that you have a long-term relationship with and you tell them, and you're at the point where you're thinking, I need to tell them that I'm really attracted to them, you know, and have a discussion about what to do. If you're at that point, it's probably because your patient is feeling similarly towards you, right? There's probably been back and forth by now, right? Mm-hmm. That your patient is is enjoying this attention as opposed to feeling kind of creeped out by it or seeing it as a red flag or or something like that. And so a lot of times if you say, look, you know, I'm I'm really, you know, attracted to you or I'm having these strong feelings, I think we should terminate. A lot of times the patient will say, "Great. That means we can have a different kind of relationship." <laughs> you know, you know, I mean cuz because yeah. again, but to get to that point, this is kind of providing both parties, you know, with with something that can be very confusing even though it may feel very good and and very exciting so generally you know speaking from an ethical standpoint it's not considered a good idea uh, or ethical to terminate treatment in order to have a romantic relationship with someone but that said you know most of the uh, boards and uh, licensing boards and and organizations and societies uh, associations, they recognize that there are instances where real love matches occur from doctor and patient. And so they have to deal with then how do we provide the proper protection without being overly paternalistic and interfering with people's freedom of choice. And so most of the licensing boards um and 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 associations will say that if you are going to have a relationship with somebody it cannot begin for at least 2 years after the final therapeutic contact or some cases it's 1 year and then there are some others uh, uh the the national association of social workers for example uh, takes the position that once a patient always a patient you know you just you can never do it you know, that's never going to be okay. But what even they say, and all the boards say, is it happens if you do it. And it's, you know, two years down the line after the last therapeutic contact. And it goes bad, it's on you. If it goes bad, your license is on the line, no matter what. So they file a complaint three years after 
right? Saying, oh, this person did this, you know, had a romantic relationship, then those uh, uh, potential penalties still apply. They certainly could. I mean, look, I I mean, I have seen cases where people had long-term relationships, you know, like after the therapy had ended, uh, they waited an appropriate amount of time. And maybe they were together for six years after that. And when the relationship goes bad, the complaint comes in. And that sort of, you know, is, is the beginning of a, of a bad time for that practitioner because the idea that this was consensual, that we were together for a long time, uh, doesn't take away from the fact that if the former patient says, I felt like I was exploited or you know, I had this idealized image of my doctor who was my doctor, and now I feel like I've been harmed, the licensee is going to have a lot to answer for. As an attorney, yep. though, yep. That, that, and, I, and I hear what you're saying, but as an attorney, that, that almost strikes me as disingenuous in some way. Like if someone 15 years go by and you break up and you're like, oh, well, 15, you know, or let's say 16 years ago when he started a relationship with me when I was his, uh, you know, his, uh, his patient. You know, I feel like he should have a complaint. And you're like, but you were with this person for 15 years. <laughs> like, how could it, I just, I hear what you're saying. I, I totally get I, it. I understand. I, I do under, I, I do it. Well, first, <laughs> so, first of all, I've never seen this happen with a 15. Right, right. I'm just saying, you I'm sorry, we're going to do example. Out. But, right, exactly. Yeah. No, but, okay. but, you know, but, but, but I don't know that the issue would be different, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think this is where it becomes so difficult. You know, on the mm-hmm. one hand, you know, uh, most of us in the health, care field. And actually, actually, if you look at the whole concept of informed consent, right? Informed consent is basically about promoting patient autonomy, that patients should be able to have a say in their healthcare decisions, right? So we, we advocate for people to be able to make choices, which kind of draw the line at when that choice is a relationship with their doctor. Right. Now, you could make a case that that's a really arbitrary distinction and relationships are risky and people can be in a relationship for a long time and be hurt and angry and upset. Uh, and is it any different really in the healthcare relationship, in the healthcare arena, especially if we've had a relationship together for you know a long time after treatment. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, What's important to remember, though, for licensees is that all of our licenses are granted in, 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 a, in the state's division of either consumer affairs or consumer protection or whatever it is. We are given, we, we earn our degrees for, for ourselves. We are given a license to protect the public. And that's why, that's why states license. They want to ensure that people have a certain level of competency. And it's all about protecting the public. And so the benefit of the doubt from a licensing board perspective always goes with the patient. And for those who you know, have some strong feelings about the ethics and the philosophy of healthcare, uh, you know, say that that's, that's not something that ever disappears or changes. And if you accept somebody as a patient, that's the responsibility that comes with that. You know, again, you can argue it and state associations, you know, the more the the, the guilds, you know, mm-hmm. may have a different perspective on it, but licensing boards are there to protect the public. Public well-being and public trust is really 
the most uh, their, their top priority. Yeah, I, that's a great quote, by the way. I just want to point that. Out. I just want to say that's great. I'm going to remember that. That you know, you get the your degree for yourself, but you get your license to protect them. Out. That's very yeah, interesting. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I, I I do believe that, and you know, I I, I you know, in, in addition to serving on these ethics committees, I do you know a lot of uh, presentations on ethics, and um, and have have published uh, book chapters and, and and papers on ethics. I, I think while people would disagree, um, I think the number one reason for learning about and studying ethics in in healthcare professions is that it is incumbent upon each practitioner to look beyond themselves and their own desires and ensure that the public never has questions about going to see a psychologist or a physician or or a counselor, or maybe even most importantly, a sex therapist, which Mm -hmm. people are a little skeptical about from the beginning. You know, we should never do things that might question people's ability to trust that our actions are for their benefit and their benefit only, you know? So there are many reasons, many good reasons to study ethics. Um, But from my perspective, it's protecting the integrity of the profession so that the public who needs our help doesn't have to think twice about, well, you know, is this somebody who's going to take advantage of me? So let's talk about sex therapy in particular for just a few minutes. I have a lot of questions for you. Yes. Okay. Um, All All right. So while doing training at the University of Michigan and their sexual health certificate program, you know, one of the things that they talked about a lot is how physical boundaries while providing sex therapy services might be different than the way that we think about boundary, physical boundaries or touch in the regular talk therapy world, right? When people are going to grad school, there's a lot of conversation about to pass the tissue box or to not pass the tissue box, or is touch okay? Is not, is mm-hmm. touch not okay? And then at some point, I think when people start practicing and doing talk therapy, they see that, oh, like some people like touch, some people like hugs, um, and that it can be okay. Um, and, but I think grad school kind of scares us a little bit about that, you know, be wise in making those decisions, but sex therapy training programs, and maybe you have a different opinion that you can tell us about there, at least in terms of my training has been like, don't touch when it comes to sex therapy. If you're doing sex therapy, leave touch out of it. Let people know we don't touch. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that advice for people who do sex therapy, whether you are in agreement with it, maybe, maybe that's not your stance, but I'd be curious to hear about that. So I do have, have a few thoughts about, you know, like in every profession, you know, and, and, and I will tell you, by the way, when I was a young clinician, I would have been the first to argue with me about this, but you know, when we're young, we're just not as good as we think we are. No, we're just, (laughs) you know, and it's not that we're not smart and it's not that we're we're not technically savvy, but there have been, but there are so many experiences that we haven't had until we actually have them, right? So I think it's good in, in training programs and in grad school that you know they take a rather strict position on uh, on again what's really designed to be public safety. Of course, you know, one of my other things is I 
I, I actually enjoy doing ethics presentations with attorneys. My fear is that when attorneys do them by themselves, it becomes more about, you know, this is how you avoid liability, which makes people afraid of not entirely untrue. Yeah, you know, and I and I get it, right? I mean, I, you know, I get it. But what that does is it sort of creates this barrier of sorts, um, you know, between the doctor and the patient. And when you're young and you're new and you don't have a lot of experience with managing these difficult cases, then I think sort of being stricter is probably better. But I think as you become a better clinician mm-hmm. and you learn more about touch, for example, let's say, let's talk specifically within the, the, the sex therapy you know, world, you know, is that, you know, touch for some people is really therapeutically very valuable, not sexual touch, you know, but sometimes, you know, we're dealing with people who are in great distress and showing them concern by passing the tissue box or squeezing their hand, you know, or giving them a hug if they ask for it. Because usually people who want it, they'll say, could I have a, could I have a hug? And so much of the time, we are afraid to do that, you know, because, because of how we've been sort of challenged and, and rightfully so, you know, people do get in legal trouble when things go too far. There's just no two ways about it. But I, I think the, the overriding maxim is everything in service of the patient. And so if you want to hug them because you think they're attractive, that's not a good idea. But if they are really distressed and need a hug, then I personally don't have an issue with that. Now, those who are very traditionally uh, Freudian, psychoanalytically trained, you know, that goes against their theory of therapy, right? Which is, you know, they want the therapist to be uh, a blank slate so that, you know, that, you know, the, the, the patient, you know, can read whatever into that blank slate that they, they need to in order to deal with their, their trauma or their transferences or, or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. My particular form of therapy is more relation. I think that a certain type of therapeutic relationship is in and of itself very therapeutic. As a matter of fact, it may be the most potent therapeutic tool that we have. So I don't you know, resist those things. Now, of course, if a patient wanted to kiss me on the lips or something like that, you know, that's more than more support than than I would feel comfortable giving. And, you know, I don't think anybody should be doing things that they don't feel comfortable with. But, you know, that said, you know, uh, any sign of, of support, of compassion, these are the things that for a lot of people make therapy work. You know, there was there were some very interesting studies that were that have been done over the years, where people who have gone through therapy, including sex therapy, and have said that they benefited from, when asked, what was it that your therapist said that you found so helpful? They have no idea. (laughs) You know, our our, our pearls of wisdom are often just lost. We love them, but that's not usually what has an impact. What has an impact is more the way we are with them you know, that we sort of accompany them on a very difficult journey, that we don't abandon them, that we don't 
judge them, that we are compassionate, you know, towards them. You know, these are the things that people often remember about their therapy. I'm not sure if I addressed exactly Melissa the, the question you were looking for in sex therapy because you're right. Touch in sex therapy is complicated because one, sex. First of all, sex therapy is is not a regulated profession in any state uh, except for Florida, as far yeah. as I know. You know, uh, people can do sex therapy um, in most states. Well, if you have a license of, of almost any type of a health discipline, you can do sex therapy, but you can call yourself a sex therapist in most states without any license at all. You know, that's an unregulated term. And so the way people are portrayed on, on television and in movies as sex therapists, you know, people are going to be, you know, a, a little skittish about it, perhaps. And so earning their trust is very important. And that comes from you know, our sort of professionalism, um, even though we want to be able to give warmth, we also have to remain professional. I'm so glad you brought that point up because that was a question I have actually is, you know, when a mental health practitioner, you know, wants to do sex therapy, you know, as an attorney advising uh, mental health practitioners, and I know you both know this, you know, mental health practitioners are advised always to stick to what you know. You know, what are you trained in? What are you experienced in? You know, what are the dangers or what kind of risk does it pose for someone who wants to do sex therapy um, or is offering sex therapy, but without the appropriate training? So actually, so, so let me add in one piece uh, mm -hmm. before I get sure. to that, because you, yeah, remind, sure. you reminded me of it. And I should have said this before, but when we were talking about when practitioners do start to notice, you know, that they're sliding a little bit, you know, what, what do you do and how do you notice that? And it actually has a lot to do with your protocols. You know, in other words, when you're, when you're deviating from protocol, you know, typically, you know, I end the session at 45 minutes and I'm not doing that anymore. I charge for missed appointments, you know, without notice given. And for this person, I don't do that. And, mm -hmm. you know, that, and that's oftentimes where you get into the most trouble with a licensing board is when they ask you kind of about how this, therapy progress and they say is this how you do therapy with your other patients and you say well no actually i you know i'm i'm more i followed my my own protocol more with other patients that's that's a red flag that you really need to pay attention to uh, as well so but back to protocol and your I, question can uh, i when once i want uh -huh. to add one thing it, what you're describing in my mind what keeps popping up is essentially guardrail Right. Yeah. Essentially, these protocols and policies, what you're saying is these are guardrails to keep you on this path. And when you remove them, like that's what that's what was going through my head when you were saying that. So anyway, so I so so I, I had a somewhat different picture, although uh, very similar to what you're saying is, you know, you talked about removing the guardrails. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking the further you get away from the guardrails, the mm -hmm. more likely you are to get hit by oncoming traffic. Sure. Absolutely. That's it. Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Right. Right. Totally. Same, yeah. same, Absolutely. same concept. Same yeah. concept. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Pay attention to the guardrail. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, 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 and that, that is a very helpful way to monitor yourself. But in terms of, you know, people practicing out there without training. Um, so I suppose, you know, I, we should give the benefit of, of the doubt to, you know, some people who think they're well-trained, you know, I, I read a lot of books. I, been through therapy myself, I, whatever, I think I really understand this, um, as opposed to those that are real hucksters, you know, and just right. trying to take people's money. 
So even if we give them the benefit of the doubt, the, 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 the idea of licensing boards, again, is to protect the public. Mm-hmm. So if you are unlicensed and practicing, certainly you might get in legal trouble, right? I mean, we see this sometimes, not so much in the mental health field, but you know, in, in, in healthcare, you know, if you're practicing medicine and you don't have a license, you know, you could be arrested and, and you can go to go to jail, you know, for that. Mm-hmm. But still, you know, any way you cut it, the biggest risk or the, the most vulnerable population is the patient population, you know? And so they're going to be harmed typically more than the unlicensed practitioner. You know, the unlicensed practitioner is going to get disciplined, uh, is going to get fined, is going to, you know, have some issues to deal with perhaps. But, you know, that'll be time limited. You know, right. the, it, it, it's the patients, you know, that can be really, really um, hurt. And so, you know, what I, I often recommend to people is that when they choose someone, they, one, be sure that they're licensed, you know, to, to not be afraid to ask them about their backgrounds. People who are, are, are really, you know, uh, competent and, and well uh, trained in what they're doing are not afraid at all to tell you about their training and to talk about their experience. Um, and so, you know, there's even in healthcare, there is a somewhat of a buyer beware, you know, kind of mindset that you have to have. Um, and, and, you know, that's actually one of the things I, I kind of like these days about websites, you know, um, I'm kind of a technophobe, you know, in the, in so many ways, but in terms of websites, people are usually pretty happy to, to, Put something up on their websites about where they trained, about who they trained with, about what their areas of specialization are. You know, so it does make for a much more informed uh, consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, but unlicensed practitioners are are always a danger, and 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 one of the other things that makes them dangerous, and people don't necessarily realize this, is a licensing board has jurisdiction over their licensees. They actually don't have much ju- much to do with people who practice unlicensed. That will go more to law enforcement. Yes, correct, you right. Know, mm-hmm. You know, yeah, exactly. you know, a licensing board may get a complaint, you see it this is not someone who's not licensed and they usually turn it over then to another division in in consumer affairs, you know, that handles, you know, the investigations and and uh, and that sort. Right. So so licensing boards uh, don't have a lot of, of power to stop this. It really gets turned over, um, as I said, to law enforcement. Now, I know that we could probably go for a oh, whole other hour easily. because uh, we have a easily. whole list of questions that we're not going to get to. I know that we could go for a lot longer, but our time is running up. So one, we want to thank you for sharing all of this really helpful information. Um, and for talking about a subject matter that maybe isn't talked about so much in, in the mental health world besides don't do that and kind of navigating those gray spaces and acknowledging that they exist and creating spaces to talk about it. So before we let you go, though, if there's anybody who's listening who wants to connect with you, maybe they're looking for supervision, maybe they're looking to get into sex therapy or looking for sex therapy supervision, or maybe they just want to know about the services that you provide. How can they find you? How can they get in touch with you? You know, they can go right to my website or my practice website, which is uh, 
www.morris, M-O-R-R-I-S, psych, P-S-Y-C-H.com. And um, I'm listed on there with my partners and associates. And uh, my bio is up there. And my contact information is up there. So morrisyke.com is, uh, is the place where people can easily find me. And uh, I agree. You know, I think we just kind of scratched the surface oh, yeah. you know, today. There's so much here to talk about. And if you are interested in a, a part two, you know, at some point down the line, I would be happy to do that. But I, I would really want to leave with the message to practitioners, you know, that this can happen to anybody. And this is why it's so important to pay attention to self-care, be in a supervision group with peers, consider your own ongoing psychotherapy, um, mm-hmm. just as a, you know, as as sort of a a health tune-up kind of kind of thing. Even mm-hmm. if you're not experiencing a lot of distress at this point, and if you do those things, you will greatly minimize your chances. Of, uh, of getting into this kind of difficulty. And because I know that you also have a number of publications, a number of things that you've written, is there a place mm-hmm. where people can go to read those? Well, so again, uh, Google is probably the easiest way to That's find That's what I did. I found a couple of years right? on Google. Yeah. If you Google my name, most of my publications come up. Um, uh, and if there's a particular topic, you know, um, that'll come up too, you know, because I, I published in a lot of areas in sex therapy besides uh, the, the ethical piece. Um, but that's, if anybody is interested, they can always contact me. I'm happy to provide, you know, copies and, and information. But if you just Google me, you'll, you'll find a lot of it. Well, again, we thank you so much. Um, as Melissa said, we're going to wrap up. Um, we thank you guys for listening um, and joining us today in this conversation. You know, for more information, or if you want to reach out to us with questions, comments, um, your own anecdotes, as always, we always say, come visit us on the website, come to visit us on the um, on our Facebook page, um, and we will talk to you soon. Be well. Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.